Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Nancy Whiteman. She is CEO of Wanna Brands. Uh, if you've seen, uh, been to a dispensary in the last uh, couple of years, you will know Wanna. They're one of the top edible companies, uh, if not the top edible company, I think, in the United States right now. And we're going to talk to Nancy a little bit about that uh, journey that she's been on heading that company, her experience as a founder, as a CEO, and talk about what's going on in the cannabis space right now. Obviously, there's a lot of drama going on in the world uh, and drama going on in the cannabis space. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how the industry is shaping up, what is going to be the impact of this coming in the coming weeks, months, quarters, and see if we can kind of get some understanding about what uh, what the future of cannabis is going to be and some insights for companies that are in the cannabis space. So with that, Nancy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Bruce. 
Yeah, it's a pleasure. So why don't we understand a little bit of the backstory? So obviously, you know, Wanda has been a huge brand in the cannabis space, but tell us about the story. Like, what were you doing before cannabis? How have you gotten involved? Tell us about the story to date in terms of the growth of Wanda. And then we can talk a little bit about what's going on in the market and what, what we see the, the future looking like in cannabis. Sure. Okay, I'd be happy to. I giggled a little bit because it's um, sort of a standard line of mine when people ask me the question of how did you get going with Wanda? that I, I, I call myself the accidental cannabis entrepreneur. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so in terms of what I was doing before WANA, I have sort of a traditional corporate background. Mm-hmm. You know, I have an MBA. I worked in corporate America for 20 years. I was the VP of marketing for a large financial services company back east. I'm now in Colorado, so I say things like back east. <laughs> um, <laughs> And my focus for my whole career had actually been marketing and branding and sales. So, you know, nice, strong background. You're going to be starting a business. The truth of the matter is that I came into cannabis a little bit accidentally. And what I mean by that is, and this was 10 years ago, this was 2010, Uh 2010, uh, the industry was really just starting, really just getting its uh, feet under it. And I had a neighbor and um, I saw him one day and asked him what he was was up to. And he told me that he had started an infused soda pop company. And I was sufficiently unfamiliar with uh, terminology. (laughs) that I said, infused with what? And by the way, uh, you'll note I said I was unfamiliar with terminology, not unfamiliar with cannabis, but (laughs) unfamiliar with the terminology. But the truth is my connection to cannabis had really always been on the recreational side. And I was relatively uneducated about the medicinal benefits of cannabis. And not that I didn't believe it, I just didn't know much about it. So unlike a lot of other folks who got into the industry because they'd had a deep personal experience or a family member or loved one had or they were motivated by issues of, you know, social justice. I really thought, well, this is kind of a cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so my co-founder and I ended up um, starting a business with this neighbor. It was a very short-lived partnership, as many of those early <laughs> partnerships were. Yep. But but he got us going, so I'm forever grateful. And I think for me, pretty quickly in, I'd say probably about six to eight months, I started getting just incredible feedback on the products and how they were helping people, that they were helping people get through chemo, that they were helping them manage, you know, serious medical conditions. And it really was like this unbelievable aha moment for me, like, oh, this is actually much bigger than I realized when I jumped into this. This is real. And then just huge interest and passion for the plant and appreciation for its power to be a positive disruptor yeah. of, of many things out there. And so while, while I didn't get into the business with some of those things in mind, I quickly pivoted and became very interested and passionate about the power of cannabis to change lives for the positive. Yeah. I'm curious, coming out of more of a corporate world, I mean, what what things did you find you were able to kind of immediately leverage in terms of your skills, experience, you know, network, things like that? And which things were not so transferable, given just kind of the nature of cannabis and where we are as an industry and kind of the early stages of it? What was your kind of, you know, realization or, or I'm just kind of curious what, what transferred well and what didn't and why? That is such an interesting question. I don't think I've ever had anybody ask me that one before. Yeah. Um, let me talk about what didn't transfer well. So, you know, as sort of a traditionally trained marketer, I certainly understood 
all the marketing principles, customer segmentation, who's your target audience, how do you create differentiated messages, the importance of brand consistency. All of those things were very well known and familiar to me. But (laughs) this industry Uh presented some pretty unique challenges, both immediately and then long term, it's presented challenges. For starters, one of the things that I saw pretty early on was that the idea of very specific customer segmentation was premature for the market. And what I mean by that was that dispensaries, by and large, particularly 10 years ago in Colorado, were tiny little storefronts. They didn't have room for niche little products, you know, that were aimed at, oh, we're going for women, you know, 30 to 45 who like to play tennis. You know, there was no there was no room for that level of of customer segmentation. What you really needed were products that were going to be broadly appealing to people and that, you know, had some transferability across different types of customer groups. So that piece of it was a little bit different. Then, of course, a lot of the marketing tools that one uses, radio advertising, Mm -hmm. TV advertising, that sort of thing, even most print advertising, were not available because there are so many rules about where you can advertise and what audience you can put your message in front of. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when we maybe three or four years into the flight started thinking about expansion, and we're currently in eight markets and we're launching in four more right now, the tried and true principles of brand consistency immediately fell apart because the truth is that every state had its own regulations, everything from label differences to wording differences, even dosage differences. So the idea of complete brand consistency from market to market turned out not to be transferable and in fact is still not transferable. So really what it really forced me to do, and now I'm getting to the what was transferable, was to really focus on the essence of the brand and what is it that we are really trying to build that could transcend the label looking exactly the same or the words being exactly the same or the flavors being exactly the same or the doshas being exactly the same. So really what we focused on really right from the beginning was quality and consistency. And I know that sounds like motherhood and apple pie. (laughs) But trust me, when I tell you 10 years ago in Colorado, it was anything but motherhood and apple pie. People were frequently putting out products that were not lab tested for potency. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I'm using this strain and I always use this strain and I know how potent this strain is. Well, guess what? That doesn't actually work because every harvest is different. And so right from the start, we third party lab tested every batch of tincture that we made. We always knew how potent our products were. And that led to us developing a reputation early on for consistency, which We've only solidified and sort of doubled down over time on what consistency looks like. Now that everybody has to do third-party lab testing, there's still ways to distinguish yourself with being consistent. And I harp on this one because consistency, of course, as a brand attribute is, is an important thing in any industry, particularly if you're creating a cannabis edible, yeah. where people have either 
personally had a bad experience or heard of somebody having a bad experience where they took an edible, they didn't feel anything in 15 minutes, they took a little bit more, still didn't feel anything. Oh, geez, yeah. It kicked in an hour later. It was way too much and it was an uncomfortable and negative experience for them. So I never wanted anybody to have that experience with our products. So consistency was very, very important. And I think it's been a real underpinning of our very strong brand loyalty. So those were some of the things that transferred and some of the things that didn't transfer. In terms of other things that transferred, I would say everybody who's trying to start a business, my gosh, if you don't know anything about accounting, (laughs) please go get yourself educated on that. That's going to be important in in any industry that you go into. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess what were some of your challenges in terms of the early stages of the company? Sometimes I find people that are coming out of corporate worlds, you know, and are used to certain, you know, certain structures, certain resources, certain ways of operating. That can be a big change, you know, in terms of getting into a very early stage, you know, the early stages of the company. And then on top of this, you're doing this in cannabis, which makes all that, you just magnifies all of it. In terms of your own kind of leadership and how, where you needed to focus, how you're spending your time, how was that, how did that had to have to shift? And then how has that evolved as the company's grown? That's a great question, too. Well, let me start with something that was sort of a shocking change from corporate life. It was the complete lack of data that was available to us in the industry at that point in time. Right now, you know, now we have BDSA and we have headset and we have, Mm -hmm. you know, a variety of of more consumer-focused market research. But back in the day, we didn't know anything. We didn't know what was going to be popular. We didn't know what people were going to like. We didn't know what dosage they wanted. We didn't know anything. So it really was flying blind. And market research, and I've actually run a corporate market research department. So I certainly know what it's supposed to look like. But market research back then really was a lot about let's put stuff out in the marketplace to see what sells, see what doesn't sell, take the stuff doesn't sell off the market and really focus on the stuff that did sell. So that really was probably one of the most glaring differences is just really having to build this company without any kind of a playbook. The other big difference was the just constantly changing regulations. When we first started in Colorado, there were no rules about third-party testing. There were no rules about child-resistant packaging. There was nothing about having imprinting on the products. There were no metric systems for seed-to-sale tracking. It was pretty wild west back Mm -hmm. in the day. And so, Almost every six months, the first couple of years, there were enormous regulatory changes that as a small business were very difficult to comply with and to pivot and to to make sure that you were doing things the right way. And that's when you saw a lot of the early brands really exiting in droves because they really hadn't gotten into the business with the expectation that they were going to need to comply with all of this stuff. And it was awfully hard to do it. And so many people just decided that leaving would be would yeah, it wasn't worth it. Yeah. More, more effective than, than really trying to comply. So those were some of the early stage challenges. In terms of my own leadership and how I spend my time, you have to remember that we started this company with really two people. Yeah. So, you know, the two of us really wore every hat there was from, you know, cooks to, you know, accountants to people to whatever. And so building the company over time really has enabled me to put a team in place 
that, you know, now my, I look at my executive team and I think, my God, every one of them is so much smarter than I am. <laughs> yeah, good. In all areas, yeah. which is exactly as it should be. Yeah, exactly. You know, I just have an amazing team right now. And what that really frees me up to do is to spend my time thinking big picture, long term. Where are we going as a company? Do we have the company properly resourced and organized to meet those objectives? Yeah, I always say that there's a there's a transition that every leader goes through from kind of the founder mode to the CEO mode. And and honestly, some don't make it, right? And some unable to kind of make that transition. What was kind of the harder parts for you in terms of going from that kind of founder mode to the CEO mode in terms of letting certain things go or finding those people that were smarter than you or, you know, had more experience than you in these areas and, and getting them in place? Any kind of practical or more kind of internal, you know, mindset challenges that you had during that process? Oh. Oh, tons. Absolutely. You know, I think it is a shift when you move being the person who does everything, being the person who doesn't do everything, but, you know, helps create the structure and the organization and the culture that enables other people to do it. There's a lot of control that you have to give up and you have to trust people to do things well. And I say well, as opposed to the way that you would do them, because in fact, nobody's going to do things exactly the way that you would do them. But the point of hiring people who are talented and passionate is that they bring things to the table that I don't bring to the table. And so the discomfort of giving up that control is rewarded many fold by the pleasure of seeing people doing things in ways that really wouldn't have even occurred to me to do them and, and doing them so much better than I would have done them. Yeah. There is that mind shift that has to happen of I'm the person who does everything to I'm the person who helps other people do everything. Yeah, great example of kind of that what it takes to shift from that founder to that the CEO role and the change in that mindset. Talk to me about talent a little bit because I know that my experience certainly has you know working with a lot of CEOs in the space has been where people find the talent because you know this industry has been growing so quickly. You know, there's not there's not a lot of native you know cannabis people with leadership business experience at the scale now that we're working with in cannabis. Where do you find other industries that people are coming from? Do you find successful kind of transitions? Are you just growing internal talent to fill these gaps? What has been your experience in terms of where you find talent, how you develop talent internally? Yeah, that's another good question. It's been a combination of both things. First of all, I really believe strongly in creating a learning culture. We're constantly doing, you know, lunch and learns and we have a educational policy where we'll we'll pay for people to take courses and to improve their skills and to go back to college if they want to do that or to go on with their schooling. So definitely we have a big focus on developing people internally so that they can move up. But for our most senior positions, and here I'm talking about our chief operating officer, our CFO, chief revenue officer, chief marketing officer, it was really people who didn't come up through the company. We did go outside for that. And our chief operating officer, who's brilliant, his name is Dan O'Connor, actually came from the craft beer industry where he was one of the major craft brands, Oscar Blues. And his background was uh, very transferable. And one of the reasons that I was so interested in, in having him join WANA was that not only had he been instrumental in building a fairly analogous type of business, craft beer, I think, has a lot of analogies with cannabis, but he grew a brand to be very significant from a revenue perspective. And in the course of that, 
managed the operations in many remote locations. I think they had five or so plants Mm -hmm. across the country. So I clearly was looking for somebody who had that ability to manage remote operations because I knew that we were heading into a heavy expansion mode. And I would say the same of our chief revenue officer, whose name is Eric Block. And he came from a major software company where he was managing sales for 22 countries. So he too has that skill set of managing a remote workforce and doing that very effectively. Our chief financial officer, Logan Craven, had worked with Dan at Oscar Blues and also came out of the CPG industry. So he had he brought a lot of knowledge in terms of how larger uh, CPG organizations work. And then finally, our chief marketing officer, who believe it or not, his name is Joe Hodes, and he's wonderful. He joined us one week into the pandemic, one week <laughs> into the shutdown. <laughs> And so that Exciting times. experience, he, he jokes that he's been, been in his basement for the last two and a half months, but we all feel like he's been there forever. And yeah. he actually was a great example of somebody who not only came with a lot of corporate background and experience, agency experience, Frontier Airlines, et cetera, but he had also been in the cannabis industry for seven years as the chief marketing officer for Dixie Brands, the sure. operating officer for General Cannabis and the CEO for Go Fire. And so we're just feeling incredibly uh, lucky to have him join Juana as our chief marketing officer. So it's been a combination of looking for analogous industries and also growing people internally. I would say just in terms of anybody who's listening who might be thinking about whether it's a good fit, what I do get cautious about are people who are coming out of extremely well-developed industries where there's tons of information and very set ways of doing things and the industry hasn't seen a lot of growth or innovation. Because those are actually the skill sets that I'm looking for more than necessarily you came out of cannabis. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and I love it when a guess is my next question, because that was going to be my next one. It's like, what industries have not worked out so well? Because I see this time and time again in cannabis spaces. They go out and they find some you know, pharmaceutical executive who's you know, run some department for 20 years, and they bring him into cannabis, and in six months, the whole thing's a disaster. Because it's, there's, you know, you're taking someone who's used to operating in a certain world, in a certain context, to do things in a certain way, and you bring him to cannabis. Cannabis doesn't work like pharmaceutical. As much as it is, you, know, you could look at it as kind of a pharmaceutical product, or you know, analogous product at some level, the market and the industry is totally different. Completely so, agree with you. And I yeah. would say the same thing. I've seen some situations where people have brought in senior leaders out of the CPG industry, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, a lot of it really depends on the person, not the industry, yeah. to be honest with you. But you know, a lot of those senior level CPG executives are used to dealing with enormous TV budgets, for example. Yep. Yep. They're used to having complete control over brand consistency. They're mm-hmm. not used to having to customize things for literally every market that they go into. And so sort of that toolkit and that skill set that they have, even though it looks like it's going to be transferable, may not end up being that transferable. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the real challenge. Like I said, I've seen it play out and I've seen it work, but I've also seen it not work. And I think that being really understanding what are the skills that you do want to transfer? How transferable are they? What is the person? You know, how well are they going to operate in this context relative to the context that they've been successful in previously? So I think that is a it's an interesting one. There's opportunities, but there's also risks associated with that. I would say so. And I would also say that it also depends on the culture that you're trying to build yeah. within yeah. your own cannabis company. 
and how well that person's going to fit into that. I think that's as important as the industry that they're coming out of. Yeah. So, but that's true in every, <laughs> that's not just a cannabis issue. Yeah, that's true. No, it, is, it is. I mean, it, and that's the challenge with cannabis because you've got, you know, you've got your company culture, you've got sort of the market and, and honestly, you have cannabis culture, right? I mean, I think we're still in this world where cannabis has, you know, culture to it and it, it's shifting as it grows and more people enter it. But, you know, there's certainly a legacy with it. There's an evolution of it. And if, if you're not aware of or, you know, understand that and how that impacts the nature of the industry, that's, you're going to run into problems. It's going to, you know, it's, I, it's I think that's such a great point. I just want to amplify what you just said because I've seen people and I've interviewed people and certainly it is absolutely not a requirement to work at WANA that you be a frequent cannabis user. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any sort of appreciation for the plant at all, I think it just makes it harder. I think it makes it harder to enter into the spirit of the company and the industry. So I do think that some experience and some openness at least to the plant is an important component of yeah, and honestly, it, it is what makes cannabis so interesting as an industry. Is like it does have this social component, this cultural component, and it does impact the way business operates. So you mentioned in the beginning that the cannabis market wasn't ready for a real kind of segmented strategy. I mean, where are we now in terms of the development of the cannabis market, in terms of segmentation strategy, the segments that are actually active in the market these days? Yes, that's a great question, and it's an evolving question for sure. I think as cannabis becomes more mainstream and more people are trying it and using it, that the opportunity to do market segmentation and customer segmentation is growing. However, I would still caveat that a little bit, which is that I think, you know, dispensaries are still pretty constrained in terms of shelf space, and they still do need things that have fairly broad appeal. One of the things that I joke about, in addition to my accidental cannabis entrepreneur joke, is that I frequently have people approach me and say, I have the best idea for a cannabis edible. And I always say to them, well, gosh, don't tell me. (laughs) We're not under NDA with each other, but they always tell me anyhow. And oftentimes it is something extremely niche. You know, it's a vegan puffed quinoa bar with carob chips or something, you know, and it may be a really cool idea. But I still think that we are at the point in the industry where we don't have dispensaries that are set up like supermarkets. They still are very shelf space constrained. And so what I would say to people is that if you're going to go niche, make sure that it's based on actual consumer or customer needs. Yeah. And maybe less focus on it's the same old vape pen, but it's pink. So women will like it. You yeah. know? Make sure that it's if you're going to go niche with a product, make sure that it's hitting a particular need or the particular need of a particular demographic. You know, there was a brand called Whoopi and Maya, and I think that they have disbanded at this point. But they had products that were aimed at women for particularly women needs like menstrual cramps, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, women are a very large and growing piece of the segment. So I think we are getting to the point where more differentiated products are going to make sense. I would still caution people not to get too overly niche with them, though. Yeah. And do you see that? I mean, what's your projection on when that's going to change or how this market is going to evolve? Is that in the coming quarters? Is it going to take a while? Or what's going to change that? Is it the retail experience? Well, it's always going to it's always going to be changing as more and more people enter the market. But I do think that a lot of it is retail driven. In other words, and home delivery could be an important part of this. Yeah. The pandemic has 
shown us that home delivery is something that people value and that they want. When you don't have the constraint of, I have 2,000 square feet to play with and I have to squeeze in every niche product, then all of a sudden I think that opens up. I also think that when cannabis becomes federally legal and, um, you know, you have the ability for brands to actually produce and sell nationally and to go across state lines, Mm -hmm. that will open up the opportunity for more segmentation. That's just because the operational complexity of running these multi-state, you know, programs and so that you don't cross state lines just means you kind of have to keep the product lines reasonable and interesting. Nancy, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about Wana, what's the best way to get that information? Well, I would encourage everybody to visit our website, which is wanabrands.com. We also have a CBD company called Wana Wellness, and you can learn more about Wana Wellness at wanawellness.com. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. Great. I'll make sure that the links and all the handles are in the show notes here so people can click through and get that. It's been a pleasure. I always love talking with people in the cannabis space, but I really love talking with folks who have been through that journey of you know, having founded early stage, have successfully scaled and built the company and are now you know, really industry leaders, kind of hearing about the story, hear about what's um, their experiences. It's been really insightful and I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on the show. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.